Episode 22, Singapore and the Malaysian Campaign. He slips, lands hard in the mud. Machine gun rounds thud into the soggy ground around him, kicking up small sprays of water. He tries to get up. He's soaked through, shivering, though not from cold. He nearly loses his balance. He almost slides back into a flooded trench. He's covered in mud. He can't see in this torrential rain. He's lost his rifle. He hears men screaming. He never signed up for this. This is the British man's war. He's from Punjab. He shouldn't be here. All he wanted was a few hot meals and to see some place outside of India. Now he's going to die in godforsaken Malaysian rain. A shell explodes. The rain turns a muted red. He hears gunfire, muffled by the deluge. He starts to run, stops himself, turns. He can't leave his unit to die alone. He charges towards the gunfire, leaving heavy footprints in the sodden ground. The shouts are getting nearer. He hears curses in English, Punjabi and Nepali. Orders barked over the bark of guns. He's... The side of a tank slides by in the sheets of rain, passing like a shark. He turns. There's another one, crashing through the torrent. It's almost on top of him. He says a prayer and fumbles at his belt for a grenade. Welcome to The Finest Half Hour, read by Richard Cutland, written by Jim Jager, and brought to you with the generous support of Wargaming. Today we take you to the jungles of Malaysia, and the great fortress of Singapore. We'll witness the first conflict between the British and the Japanese. We'll watch naval thinking change overnight as the pride of the Royal Navy combats the Japanese Air Force on the open sea. And we'll learn the fate of the true Gibraltar of the East. So let us begin at the beginning, one day after the attack on Pearl Harbour. December the 8th, 1941. An old Hawk 3 biplane claws its way into the air. It's going to stop an invasion. But transports are already on the beach. Rifles flash. Machine guns fire into the sky. The old Hawk comes crashing down. But the sacrifice means little. For in a few hours, its country will be at peace. On the 8th of December, the Japanese launched a full-scale invasion of Thailand. They landed all along the Thai coast. Fighting was fierce. The Thai army and beleaguered Thai police opposed the landings wherever they could. But behind the scenes, secret negotiations have been taking place. The Japanese had been pressing the Thai government to join the Axis for weeks. The Thai government had, in months past, asked Britain and America to guarantee its safety. But that was a guarantee neither country could make. So, within five hours of Japanese soldiers landing on Thai soil, the government signed a deal with the Japanese. They would join the Axis and let the Japanese use Thailand as a jumping-off point for the conquest of Burma and Malaysia if they could have part of the spoils. December the 8th, 1941 to January the 14th, 1942. It had happened all at once, like a storm breaking. They had dug in facing north, 
ready to meet the advancing foe. Then, in one chaotic instant, fire erupted from behind them. The Japanese were coming from the south, where they weren't supposed to be, where they couldn't be. It was impossible. His men held the only real road. No one could move that fast through the jungle. That had been two days ago. Since then, they'd been falling back, dragging what equipment they could. They'd been harassed by scouting parties and snipers all the way. There was no word yet on where the next defensive line might be, and always the Japanese were on their heels. Then there, a humming noise. He saw them barreling down the road. A Japanese motorcycle team. The enemy front line was so close that sometimes their outriders accidentally drove straight through his retreating column. The Japanese scouts were so close he could see their faces. And the moments of recognition and horror upon them as they realised just what they'd wandered into. This time he was ready for them. He pulled his pistol from its holster and fired. The invasion of Thailand wasn't the only invasion that began on the 8th of December. That same day, the Japanese also landed in Malaysia. Their plan? To march down the Malaysian peninsula and kick the British out of the all-important port of Singapore. On paper, though, this looked like an impossible task. The Japanese were outnumbered, on the offensive, and operating far from home. Not to mention that the British had been preparing for just such an invasion since before the war even began. Because of these advantages, and a little bit because of racism, the British were confident of victory. But, as the colonial powers were learning across Asia, they had woefully misjudged both their own forces and the enemy they would face. The British plan hinged on invading Thailand from the south to stop or at least severely delay, the bulk of the Japanese forces marching into Malaysia from the safety of their new-found ally to the north. So the British marched in, and Thailand was invaded for the second time in two days. But unlike the rapid conquest by the Japanese, the British invasion of Thailand turned out to be a disaster. British forces were pinned down by local police and civilian volunteers. The operation was delayed, objectives were missed, and finally the whole endeavour was abandoned after four days. Meanwhile, Japanese forces landing on the Malaysian coast seized forward airbases. The very landing strips the British had constructed to help defend the Malaysian peninsula would now serve as launch points for Japanese planes. Air superiority was lost almost before the war began. Meanwhile, the ground fight in Malaysia was going poorly as well. The jungle, which should have been a great advantage for the defender, turned into a nightmare for the British. This is not because the Japanese were expert jungle warriors, as much of the propaganda of the time tried to state. After all, there are no jungles in Japan, and they certainly didn't gain any jungle fighting experience in northern China but simply because they did not make the same assumptions about the jungle that the British did. The British assumed that the jungle was impassable, especially for tanks, so they did little to defend anything outside of the major roads, and had no tanks attached to their forces at all. 
Meanwhile, the Japanese realised that light tanks could operate along the plantation dirt roads that crisscrossed the country, and that, while mechanised infantry riding trucks would get bogged down on these roads, they had a secret weapon that wouldn't. Bicycles. Yes, they used bicycles to form a strange variant of the old mounted infantry brigades. They would use their speed and ability to traverse the undefended backcountry to get behind British defensive positions and then dismount to assail the defenders from an unexpected angle, all while being able to carry twice the gear of a normal unmounted troop. And because of this, the jungle, which should have been the British force's greatest asset, turned into an advantage for the attacker. It camouflaged the movements of the Japanese and allowed them to sweep around British troops, unnoticed until moments before an attack. This advantage was compounded by two other factors. First, most of the British forces were made up of relatively inexperienced Indian and Nepalese troops, some of whom were not that motivated to lay down their lives for a country that was currently exploiting their own. And second, British leadership was a mess. Colonial garrisons had a fundamentally different mindset from the regular army. They had grown to see their role more as a police force, tasked with putting down revolts and making sure everything stayed peaceful than as soldiers. They were used to conceptualising their enemy as someone with a massive disadvantage in technology, training and military theory. They were not at all prepared for the Japanese. And this was exacerbated by the fact that colonial service was sometimes where less qualified officers were sent to ride out their days. As defeat turned into withdrawal, this deficiency in officer quality would lead to infighting, miscommunication and, for lack of a better word, pig-headedness among some of the officers, all of which turned a salvageable defence into unmanageable chaos. Though individual British and Indian units put up a good fight, as a whole the defenders were simply not ready for the speed and coordination of the Japanese advance. Everywhere they were forced back. By the second week of January, all that was left of the British was the tip of the Malaysian Peninsula, the state of Johor. January the 14th to the 22nd, 1942. He hid in the undergrowth. Thick tropical leaves surrounded him. Serpents slithered by. A brightly coloured lizard crawled onto his back. He didn't move. In his hand was a switch. It was connected to a web of explosives hidden under the bridge in the valley below. He had one job to make sure the Japanese never made it all the way across the bridge and he wouldn't move until that job was complete. The British had one last chance to turn the tables on the Japanese. They'd lay an ambush of their own. They sent their best troops, the Australian 8th Division, to lie in wait for the invaders at a crucial river crossing. They backed these troops up with as strong an artillery contingent as they could muster and prepared for the inevitable Japanese arrival. The waiting was tense. The Australians rigged the only bridge over the crossing to blow and hid in the jungle. A Japanese scouting party raced across the causeway and passed right by the hidden Aussies, 
but the Australians kept their cool. They wouldn't blow the bridge until the main Japanese force was crossing. Then, there they were, the Imperial Guards riding their bicycles. When they were halfway across, the Australians blew the bridge. Men and equipment and bikes tumbled into the water below. The Australian division raked the Japanese with machine gun fire. Grenades fell upon the unsuspecting troops. The Imperial Guards were thrown into disarray. Men scrambled to untie rifles, which they had lashed to their bikes. Others dived for cover to try to pinpoint where the enemy fire was coming from since the Australians were still well concealed. For once, the fight was going the Allies' way. Then, disaster. By sheer luck, the scouting party that the Australians had let through stumbled upon the telephone wire, connecting the ambushers to their supporting artillery, and severed it. They couldn't call for artillery support. The Japanese might push through. But then luck turned again. The Japanese artillery was poorly sighted and started to rain down upon their own men. It was chaos. The Imperial Guards were pinned, held at the crossing until sunset. Then, under cover of dark, the Australians withdrew. Having badly mauled their enemy, but knowing that without their artillery, the next day would not go so well. They fell back to another prepared position, this time with anti-tank guns, and again fell on the Japanese. Not only inflicting serious losses on the infantry, but knocking out a number of the Japanese tanks in the process. In Singapore, they held the attack as the turning point in the war. The Japanese had been halted, they would have to go on the defensive. But the Japanese had other plans. That night, they seized a number of local barges and used the river to circumvent the Australians entirely. They landed at a town garrisoned by Indian troops that served as an anchor for the British line. The landing was spotted by an Indian patrol. Shots were fired, but the landing was never reported to headquarters. By noon, the Japanese were besieging the town. Australian artillery held them off for a while, but Japanese airstrikes managed to land direct hit on the local headquarters, killing off most of the command staff. The Indian garrison, who were, in truth, mostly teenagers with almost no training, nearly ceased to function. By night, the Japanese had seized the town. Again, the British forces withdrew. This time, they rallied a few miles out of town, and prepared for a counter-attack, but were met by a Japanese ambush, and so they fell back once more and prepared to defend. Again, the Australian anti-tank guns went to work, shattering the Japanese tank advance, but the relentless Japanese infantry pushed the nearby British infantry back. They retreated into the hills, but had no radio to inform command of where they were going. The next day, at first light, an Indian regiment was sent to retake the British position, but the British troops, who had fallen back to the nearby hills, mistook them for Japanese and fired upon them with everything they had. The Indian troops retreated, 
the hole in the line couldn't be patched. The Australian troops and much of the Indian forces were now in danger of being cut off. In a desperate bayonet charge, they managed to break their way through the Japanese encirclement, but suffered massive losses. The young Indian brigade disintegrated entirely, functionally ceasing to exist as a fighting unit. But, though the British forces had made it out of one pocket, they were trapped in another, larger one. They had to get across the Parat Sulong Bridge to the southeast, but it was already in Japanese hands. For two days they fought a fighting retreat as they made their way to the fateful bridge, but when they got there, they found the Japanese already dug in. Assailed from all sides, the British troops fought desperately, fending off Japanese tanks with hand grenades and anti-tank rifles. But supplies were running low, and with every passing hour, their tiny perimeter was shrinking. They requested an airdrop, but what little the beleaguered British Air Force could provide was not nearly enough. The next morning, the trapped Allied forces tried one last life-or-death breakout. But, exhausted, weakened, and with casualties mounting, this too was repulsed. At last, they spiked their guns and, those who were able, vanished into the jungle and the swamps. Those who were not, the wounded, and those who cared for them, were massacred by the Japanese. British resistance on the Malaysian Peninsula ceased to exist. December the 10th, 1941. Flak spewed from the many barrels of his anti-aircraft gun. The distinctive crash of shells leaping from the weapon jarred his ears. He heard the whine of a plane falling from the sky. Someone nearby cheered. Then it was back to business. More Japanese planes were coming. Their guns spluttered and coughed. Another bad round. The air was thick as soup, salty and humid. He was pouring sweat, and their anti-aircraft ammunition had started to go bad from too much time in the tropical heat. He loaded in more rounds. Then he saw it, a white streak in the water. Torpedo, he shouted, but it was too late. Normally, we try to go in chronological order in these episodes, but now we're going to jump back a month to discuss the events that were happening out at sea while Malaysia was being invaded, because the British had developed much of their Pacific strategy around the idea that ships based in Singapore would serve as a deterrent to Japanese advances. Part of this plan centred around the idea that ships from the US Navy would join their British counterparts at the island and form a fleet that could contest Japanese sea power. But after the attack on Pearl Harbour, this was no longer possible. Nonetheless, the British had sent two capital ships to defend Singapore. The HMS Repulse, a World War I battlecruiser that had been heavily refitted during the interwar years, and the HMS Prince of Wales. The Prince of Wales was the ship. It had fought the Bismarck, it was the ship that carried the Prime Minister when he went to meet with FDR. It literally bore the title of the British Head of State. It was modern, high-tech and fast. It was one of the premier battleships of the British fleet. 
Together, these ships sortied from Singapore on the 8th of December, hoping to intercept the Japanese invasion fleet before they could finish unloading men and material for the conquest of Malaysia. On the 9th, though, unbeknownst to the crew, they were spotted by a Japanese submarine. This submarine shadowed them through the tropical waters, radioing their position back to command. The Japanese Air Force saw an opportunity. Immediately, a planned raid on Singapore was dropped and their planes rearmed with torpedoes. They were going after the Prince of Wales. The British ships escaped, though, losing the Japanese in the night. The next morning, the British received word of Japanese landings on Malaysia. They turned north to try to intercept any craft still there. Japanese planes were searching for them in the south, but one Imperial Scout plane, far north of its compatriots, spotted them and radioed in their position. The hunt was on. The Prince of Wales should have spotted the approaching bombers, having one of the finest radar systems available at the time. But the ship was never built for service in the Pacific. The humid air had fried its delicate radar, and it was sailing blind. It was not until observers on the deck spotted the Japanese planes that they had any warning of an attack, and by that point, it was too late. At the limit of their fuel, the Japanese attacked piecemeal, swooping in in small groups as they arrived. The first wave was shredded by the British two-pounders, but more were on their way. The ships had no air cover, and they'd been travelling under radio silence, so even the meagre aid the pilots at Singapore might have offered was out of reach. Still the pom-poms roared and flak filled the air. The next wave of attackers, though, were torpedo bombers. They failed to land a single hit on the repulse, but one torpedo managed to slam into the port propeller of the Prince of Wales. She began to list. Another line of Japanese torpedo bombers came screaming in, ignoring the wounded Prince of Wales and hammering at the repulse from all sides. Three torpedoes hit. Within minutes, the battlecruiser sank. Finally, another wave of bombers assailed the Prince of Wales. The stricken ship never had a chance. Soon, she too was sinking beneath the waves. For the first time in history, a capital ship at sea had been sunk solely by air power. Upon receiving the news, Winston Churchill said, In all the war, I never received a more direct shock. As I turned over and twisted in bed, the full horror of the news sank in upon me. There were no British or American ships in the Indian Ocean or the Pacific except the American survivors of Pearl Harbor, who were hastening back to California across the vast expanse of waters. Japan was supreme, and we everywhere were weak and naked. Things in the Pacific looked grim for the Allies, and the great naval fortress of Singapore had been reduced to something it was never meant to be, a land-bound stockade. February the 8th to the 15th, 1942. Burning oil filled the river, illuminating the night. 
Men screamed in the distance. Machine gun rounds chewed into the marshy soil. It was chaos. It was like some vision of hell in the thick black smoke and the wavering red light. He clung to his rifle and did what he was trained to do, shoot the hazy silhouettes coming their way. He pressed into the mud, staying low behind the rotting tree stump that served as his only protection against the torrent of lead and steel hurtling towards him. A burning man staggered through the smoke and ran past. The crump of mortars sounded in the background. He reloaded. He kept shooting. It was what he was trained to do. The mainland was abandoned. The British had retreated to the island of Singapore. The fortress there had once been thought to be unconquerable, a final redoubt that could fend off any foe. But there was just one problem. Those who had made that judgement had only been thinking about an attack from the sea. An attack from the Malaysian peninsula was unthinkable, so little effort had been put into shoring up Singapore's landward defences. And, because so much of the military thinking about Singapore had been focused on its use as a bulwark against any naval advance, even those of its great guns which could be swung towards the peninsula were only equipped with armour-piercing shells, not high explosives suited to disrupting a land-bound force. A few desperate engagements had bought the British time to blow the causeway to Singapore, but the Japanese were coming. It was just a matter of time. The British prepared their defences. Command expected an attack from the northeast, so they stationed the bulk of their forces there while sending the remaining Australian contingent to guard the more westerly parts of the island. An Australian patrol reported a build-up of Japanese forces in the northwest, but this was considered inconsequential, a ruse to distract from the attack on the northeast and ignored. Then the Australians were hit with a massive artillery bombardment. Over 15 hours, almost 90,000 shells rained down upon them. But command took this as a diversion from the invasion that they were sure would come from the northeast. Then boats began to land. The Japanese hit the beaches all across the northwest. Fighting was intense. The battle raged into the night. The Australians fought savagely and made the Japanese pay for every inch of ground, but they were simply spread too thin. Still, British command held most of the forces in reserve in the northeast. Token reinforcements were sent, but they could not patch the holes in the line. Communication began to break down. Some units started to withdraw, while others fought on. Soon it was clear the beaches couldn't be defended. The Japanese had secured their landing zone. The next day, February the 11th, the Japanese pressed the attack. A hastily organised second line of defence collapsed. A counterattack was ordered to retake it. A group of fresh Australian recruits were assembled into an ad hoc battalion and sent forward to serve as one prong of a three-pronged strike. This attack was promptly called off as other parts of command structure ordered a larger counterattack to be assembled. But no one told the Australians. The Japanese found them forward and alone, waiting to meet up with the rest of the attack force. It was a slaughter. More than half of the battalion was lost. 
Elsewhere, results were not much better. Communication problems still plagued the British forces, and disagreements in command hampered the defence. The remaining defenders were withdrawn to a tight ring around the city itself, but the city's water supply was in critical condition. The main reservoirs had been lost to the Japanese, and shelling had done severe damage to the waterworks. Over a million people now crowded into the tight cordon the British maintained, and every day their situation became worse. Then, on the 13th, the Japanese repaired the causeway to Singapore. Tanks flowed over the bridge. By the 15th, the situation was desperate. The Japanese commander called for them to surrender. They'd vacillated, but he turned to them and shouted boldly, All I want to hear from you is yes or no. Was it time? The local commander called together his senior staff to decide between one of two desperate measures. Either an immediate counterattack with everything they had, or throw in the towel and ask for terms. After a heated debate, it was decided they would surrender. That evening, they laid down their arms. 80,000 Allied soldiers were taken prisoner by 30,000 members of the Imperial Army. It was the worst military disaster in the history of the United Kingdom. And the irony is, it was based on a bluff. The Japanese were stretched to their limit only slightly better supplied than the British forces. They were vastly outnumbered and were terrified of a house-to-house -house battle of attrition like Stalingrad, where even raw colonial troops might prove costly to dislodge. In fact, if the decision had gone the other way and the British had simply thrown the weight of their forces against the Japanese that day, they may well have succeeded, but we'll never know because by the 15th of February 1942, the Japanese had run the table against Allied forces. The American fleet was still in tatters. The Philippines were nearly lost. Thailand had joined the Axis. The Japanese were driving through Burma towards the Indian border, and now the unconquerable fortress, Singapore, had been taken. But join us next time as the Allies try to claw their way back in at the battles of the Java and the Coral Seas. Music